there cannot be a solution unless the big tech companies that effectively have the budget. It's not a startup yeah. that's going to solve the issue. These big tech companies that have the budget need to allocate resources to make sure that their platforms are designed in a way that's safe. Welcome back to another episode of Wise On Air, the show where we talk to the world's leading minds on the future of education. My name is Basim, the producer of the show. As the metaverse continues to evolve from fiction to reality, with platforms like Roblox, Fortnite, and Meta gaining popularity, should we be concerned about its implications, especially for our children? The metaverse has had a tumultuous development, to say the least. Last year, following its reveal, there was a lot of hype surrounding the potential of what this technology can be. But the conversation quickly died down with recent leaps in AI development taking center stage. Truth be told, I personally felt it was a fad, which is why we haven't covered it on the show yet. But with recent news of hyper-realistic podcasts now being filmed in the metaverse, we're starting to get a glimpse of what this technology could entail in the future. With the concept of the metaverse still being an ambiguous concept to many, it's important to go past the hype and consider the safety and privacy implications of what this technology brings. To help us dive into this topic, we have the perfect guest. Yalda Aukar wears many hats. She's a mother, entrepreneur, investor, and technologist. But most relevant to our conversation today is her work with Bracket Foundation on combating online child abuse through technology. In conversation with WISE director and host of this episode, Elias Fulfoul, Yalda shares some alarming statistics about the rise of online child exploitation and abuse. She discusses how predators are using these platforms like online gaming and the metaverse to target our children. And she also shares her perspective on whether big tech companies are doing enough to address these issues. And she'll talk about what actions different stakeholders, from parents to policymakers, can take to create a safer online environment for our kids. Without further ado, let's jump to Elias to kick off this important conversation. Good morning, everyone. I am extremely happy today to host my friend, Yalda, I'm so happy that we're having this conversation and I'm so happy about the beautiful work you're doing. And if we start off by saying, you know, which hat you're the most excited about between the wife, the entrepreneur, the VC, the technologist, the mother, where I know it's a hard one. I'm not asking for a ranking, but I'm saying, where do you feel a level of fulfillment in, in these roles? It could be all of them, by the way. Yeah, it could be all of them. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, I have to say I'm a big fan uh, of the podcast. Uh, I love the content. I love the diversity of the speakers, the diversity of the opinions. I follow it and I look forward to it with enthusiasm and excitement. So really, thank you for having me on. Full disclosure, I have to say I'm definitely not a technologist. <laughs> but thank you for the compliment. I'll take it. Uh, I'll say I'm someone who's really, uh, you know, curious to solve uh, global challenges. Um, I'm really passionate about inspiring the next generation. And uh, as you pointed to, and I guess we're going to get into it as well. I'm, um, I would say, really passionate about making the Internet safer for kids. So perhaps, obviously, many hats, as you said, I would definitely go with you know, my true north and my inspiration, my guiding um, light is my kids, yeah. right? And ultimately, their safety, they're like the pinnacle that hovers over 
everything that I do. So yeah, I guess that's that's their short answer to very. And I got uh, the chance question. to meet them, and they're <coughs> such a beautiful kids with a mix of you know the, the, the Lebanese and the Italian blood and, and oh, some of the posts when when you when you show your kids eating pasta is like <laughs> happiness in an image Yelda could you share a little bit more now about yourself but more specifically I'd love to understand how you pivoted from the world of finance to the world of investment and and involvement yeah. with you know because you invest mainly in technology so that, that's where technologies came <laughs> from but it, the, the investment in specific this specific sector no yeah thank you for for this question and i never pass an opportunity to tell my story <laughs> and i could go on and on and on for you know <laughs> for hours so you tell me how deep you want to go how light you want to keep i'll it. jump in whenever i want to <laughs> jump in so please tell um, us so yeah so proudly born in beirut So I was born in the midst uh, of the war. We kind of, we left Lebanon at the tail end of the Lebanese civil war. So late 80s. Uh, by the age of 12, I had gone to like, uh, you know, seven different schools. <laughs> wow. So in true Lebanese style, really, I learned to adapt quickly to volatile uh, environments, yeah. I'd have to say. So I was always interested in government affairs, public policy, politics, uh, but eventually <laughs> took on a very big loan to study in the U.S. and decided that the quickest way to pay off that loan was to go work in finance. <laughs> and in true Lebanese style, out of all the investment banks, I could have Uh, chosen, I chose Lehman Brothers in 2000. So clearly <laughs> not the best time to be uh, in investment banking yeah. and an even worse time to be at Lehman. I was one of those bankers in Canary Wharf in London leaving the office with the cardboard boxes, wow. you know, paparazzi taking pictures. I had my very short <laughs> moment of fame there. Then was offered, um, you know, a job at Morgan Stanley, which very, very conveniently was right next door. So I my, transitioned from 20 Bank Street to 25 Bank Street. The good thing is it didn't really affect my commute. And uh, yeah, and then I started covering the golf markets mm -hmm. uh, from there. So I went from being a trader to asset manager. And I remember my very first trip uh, to Doha, which is uh, where we are now, was in early 2010. There was, um, I don't know if you remember, there was this Icelandic ash cloud Yeah. Uh, that kind of like stopped all the flights. So yeah. I ended up being trapped here for longer than expected. Yeah. And I had obviously, you know, st met my husband and he had moved to Doha. And I needed a reason for Morgan Stanley to send, to, <laughs> to send me more often to Qatar. <laughs> so I could see my fiance at the time. You know, I was a, a junior analyst who couldn't really afford those flights. And again, in true Lebanese style, sold them on a business plan of amazing contacts that I actually didn't have. I convinced my way into their heart that yeah. I was definitely the banker that they needed to bet on to cover the market. Yeah. And I arrived here, again, ash cloud, I'm trapped, couldn't go to Dubai. Um, I only knew uh, one one banker, one private banker at Credit Suisse. And you're, I don't know how, how much you've interacted with private bankers, but never ask them about their book. Right? They'll never give you an intro. Yeah. They'll never course, tell, yeah. give you a lead. Yeah. But what they will do is you know, tell you that you're wasting your time. So this banker told me, you know, you're wasting your time. I'll do you a favor. You can have my driver. He'll drive you back to, to the hotel. And then you can you know, go, your, go, go your own way. And I had this eureka moment in the car where uh, I took the driver's uh, business card. 
And I saw he was working for one of those car agencies, called them up, told them, please send me a driver the next day. Funny enough, they sent me the same driver. And my instruction to him was, look, you're going to be with me this entire week and you're going to drive me around to all the places you take the crazy Swiss bankers to. So literally, <laughs> I was a door-to-door -door salesperson for the rest of my stay. And this is pre-Google Maps, right? So I would be driving in the desert, you know, Doha in 2010 was yeah, you know, different yeah. to yeah. what, you know, Doha post-World Cup is. And I used to arrive, there would be like desert, 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 then a big palace, then a gate. And the only comfort I had was that effectively there was a prior banker who had come here. That's so this must be a safe space. So I would knock at the door with my little briefcase, my little business card that thankfully had London on it and Morgan Stanley on it and be very confidently saying, oh, I'm here to meet the sheikh. Because obviously, you know, it's a palace. There must be someone important living there. So that's kind of how I started my career, you know, covering the Gulf markets wow. and building my book. And then InvestCorp, a mid-cap private equity firm in the Gulf, heard yeah. about me. And they're like, uh, apparently there's this lady banker, you know, <laughs> banking <not> and <laughs> showing up uninvited she at events. How, she knows how to navigate the um, ecosystem here. No, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, they made me an offer to uh, head their office here in Doha. Terrific. And I I have to say that was definitely one of the biggest breaks in my career. And at the time, so to go to your point about tech, so this is 2013. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the time when you had the big sovereign wealth funds um, in the region investing heavily in technology. So you might remember, you know, the, uh, the, the landmark, years, yeah, the yeah, landmark yeah. deal when Saudi invested in Uber and, you know, they were investing in Airbnb and Lyft, etc. But unless you were a sovereign, you're probably not seeing the deal flow at yeah, all, yeah. right? And if you were seeing it, it's probably a company that you wanted to sell, not yeah, to buy, because yeah. it meant the West Coast passed on it, the East Coast passed on it, Europe passed so on it, the sun, yeah. all, this, all the signals pointing to sell. So I pitched InvestCorp at the time internally on a business plan to start covering you know, the VC world. And I t told them, it, you know, it feels very much like a generational trade. And you know, the population is young. They understand it. You know, they use it. Why don't we give it a go? But at the time, they didn't really have the risk appetite for it. And I was eight months pregnant with my first. And I told my husband, um, I think I'm going to quit InvestCorp. He's like, <laughs> what? Are you out of your mind? Like, you have the best possible gig wow. and, you're, and, you're, and you're just going to give it up? I'm like, no, I have a hunch. He's like, this is not a hunch. It's called hormones. You're eight months pregnant. It's hormones. You know, let's sleep, you know, sleep it yeah. through, right? And <laughs> post-pregnancy, we can decide. But I actually went ahead and quit my job, eight months pregnant. Wow. Foregoing maternity benefits, insurance, you know, the wow. amazing expat setup that I have because I wanted to pursue this vision of creating a, a VC firm uh, and giving access to an asset class that was not that accessible in this part of the world. And we launched our first fund in February 2017. Uh, it was a small $50 million fund. And then we grew Bracket Capital, you know, to a big asset manager. You found your co-founder while you were having those hints? <laughs> or, or, <laughs> no, or, my co-founder was a good friend and yeah. he has a fantastic story. Actually, yeah. he's definitely a guest for your... We'll, we'll keep it. Yeah. So my co-founder, Jahan Bose Little, so he was one of my peers in the investment banking days. Yeah. So when I was at Morgan Stanley, he was at Goldman. When I was at InvestCorp, he was at Millennium. But what's super interesting about him is that in, at the peak of the financial crisis of 2008, he decided to resign from his job and become a hip-hop artist. <laughs> 
and he wrote you a guys bo- are <laughs> oh no he's definitely the outlier and he wrote a book about it and it was called the trade effectively how he traded you know his suit and tie and you know commute to the city yeah. to hip hop you know outfit in the underground scene of soho and then yeah he wrote a single and it went it went well but then realized that perhaps you know it, it was actually much harder to be a hip hop artist and sign yourself to a label so b- than to trade <laughs> both co-founders yeah, are super both, hustlers i guess they're hustlers the, this the way you got to it's almost a survival skills you have to how much education the the seven years or the 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 changes in seven different schools and all that how much you think ha- that have prepared your character to become this person who don't take no as an answer and you you go for what you believe you can get that's actually a great question that's a very therapist like question yeah, by the way. No, i just, <laughs> just want to bring it back to education uh, okay let's dig deep into your childhood traumas <laughs> no, no 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 it's really about education and yeah. and character building that's that's yeah, where no, i want to get i think that moving around and having to adapt to different you know situations and geographies and environments definitely helped me become very comfortable with volatile environments and the notion of risk mm. right i feel that risky volatile environments are actually my comfort zone and that probably mm-hmm. comes from the fact that i had to survive yeah. as you say, yeah. say in a situation that weren't um, that straightforward yeah. right especially as a child yeah. um so yes uh, you know to my husband's point right yeah. like letting go of the perfect setup yeah. and what seems to be the perfect time right yeah. you're only yeah. going up hell yeah. and you decide to yeah. in a way sabotage it but that's because you know maybe when it becomes too stable it, you, you know it, it doesn't resonate anymore that deeply yeah um and it, and it then, it's almost how much is intuition versus is it like deep you know gut calling to say if i don't jump now i'll miss the opportunity and the worst is Yeah. I can always come back to an amazing role with an amazing package. Yeah, I guess it's uh, maybe it's also a Middle Eastern thing, right? Like you probably experience it uh, as well. Your outlook on life is more that the glass is half full rather yeah. than yeah. glass empty. It's half empty. And as you said, like worst case scenario, what happens? Fine. Uh, maybe you lose a year or two, but then you can go back yeah. up the corporate ladder. Yeah. and you made it happen once you'll make it happen again yeah. but then the excitement that comes with building something that you know, effectively yours and i always say bracket and the foundation as well it's your fourth kids they're, they're my fourth kids <laughs> yeah. like i literally yeah. birthed bracket capital as i was birthing yeah. my first child yeah. and i birthed the foundation as i was birthing my second child right yeah. <laughs> we t- <laughs> haven't right. done so, a third so t- thing. Tell us, tell us about yeah. now, you took the risk, you mm-hmm. leave this package, you create the VC, your own vision with yes. your co-founder, who is a hip-hop artist. But <laughs> the, the cooler you, one. A cool one. And you create Bracket Capital with two big pillars, one in the state and one in the Middle East. And you start investing. And you raise your fund one, your fund yeah. two. They were good years. I think 2013, 2019 were... 2017 yeah. to 2021, I would say, were definitely the euphoric years of yeah. venture capital. Yeah. And that definitely played to our advantage. We're in the right place at the right time. To your point, the greatest opportunities there was that we were backing founders with amazing ideas. Mm. 
and groundbreaking industries, yeah. right? So that's what I feel was the most exciting part about that. And it yeah. did pave the way, you know, to Bracket Foundation. Yeah, and so well. Bracket Capital, you're investing, you're managing money. The relationship is very much, you know, you need yeah. to look for great founders, great ideas. You invest and if you've done a good job, you'll have a good return on investment after a few years. So we But developed- the foundation is a completely different... Uh, explain to us, you know... The- I'll, I'll close the loop on Bracket actually first. So we developed our niche in something called the secondaries market. Mm. Which is a tough... Which is, yeah. is not not an easy... I mean, mm. is it easy for you but difficult for other people? Like, Let's say we were doing secondaries when secondaries were frowned upon, right? Mm. If you think about it, every single asset class outside of venture, the secondaries market is orders of magnitude larger than the primary markets. Think of commodities, of car sales, of real estate, of public equities, right, that you trade. No one participates in the issuance. Everyone's trading the stock afterwards, except in venture. In venture, you have billions of dollars of capital that are chasing, you know, a few deals. And obviously, that's exacerbating the price. So our strategy was to provide liquidity solutions to early employees and founders who probably have the bulk of their wealth tied up in one name, the company that they founded or that they're working for if they're early employees, and to early stage funds that uh, probably have 80 to 90 percent of the NAV of their portfolio linked to one or two names in their portfolio, but they can't materialize it until the IPO. So that kind of uh, became our strategy and it worked really well for us because my team's background comes from the hedge fund world. Yeah. So they took a very value-driven approach to growth investing. Okay. So that, that's the strategy that we did, which now became much more popular. It's funny how the landscape really changed yeah, between 2017 and 2023. Now many people want to do it. There yeah. are so many fund managers who are specialized in secondaries. We were an early first mover in the space. It worked, it worked out especially in this volatile environment because you're uh, creating a hedge within your portfolio by investing at multiples that aren't that inflated. I'm not going <laughs> to badmouth anyone <laughs> in the industry, but effectively, yes, that's what happened. All right, so you have kids number one, so kids number real one, kid number one. Bracket Capital. Bracket and then capital. Kid, number, kid two number two is linked to Bracket Capital, obviously. Of so course. Bracket Foundation is the philanthropic venture arm uh, of Bracket Capital. And the inspiration and the story behind that, and that's also a very in- interesting story. So I was pregnant with my second, and I was on a road show here in the Middle East with one of our portfolio companies, mm-hmm. which was an AI voice recognition system. No, excuse me, an AI image recognition software. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, what they were doing. And we were on the road show, and I remember them uh, saying that one of their clients was actually a child safety organization. Mm. And I found that quite you know, interesting. Why would image recognition software have a child safety organization as a client? And they explained to me for the very first time I heard the word uh, CSAM, so child sexual abuse material. Wow. And again, as a mother and pregnant, that, that triggered me. I'm like, wow, so there's, there's such a thing that exists and it's at scale yeah. to the point that it requires a very sophisticated solution, which is artificial intelligence, to address to mitigate, it. Yeah. And I started doing research. I remember after that roadshow and that 
the time I spent with that AI company, I spent literally three weeks obsessed. Like I wanted to understand more about that space. And I realized that there was very little uh, literature that existed on online child sexual exploitation and abuse. Again, this is 2019. It's funny how things change, you know, in four, five, five, four or five years. years. Yeah. In 2000, there was no real, uh, you know, repertoire of, you know, no one had really mapped how the magnitude of the problem. So I decided to start off uh, as a corporate social responsibility project, right, at the at bracket capital level, you know, just mapping out. Mm. How big, how uh, tedious, how alarming that that you know crime effectively uh, had become, and we issued a white paper into, uh, on how to leverage artificial intelligence to combat online child sexual. That was our first collaboration. That I was think, our first collaboration at, with, at New York Concordia in Summit. New York, yeah. Exactly. So we launched the white paper on the sidelines of the UN uh, General Assembly. And funny enough, 2019 was the 30th an anniversary of the Convention on the Rights of mm -hmm. the Child. Mm -hmm. And obviously there's been much progress that has been made in the real world yeah. to safeguard our children, but online, you know, they're still very yeah. much neglected. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we wrote the white paper, and I have some figures maybe for our audience in terms of you know how... how um, alarming you know the issue is i i can uh, i can read them out yeah. so so in the last two decades so the number of files containing child sexual abuse material has increased one 100 1000 folds wow so that's across the world across the world yeah. so obviously yeah. uh, you know yeah, the technology yeah. is uh, enabling that behavior but it's uh, it's it's such a huge number one in five children is a victim of online grooming every day one in one, one in five one in five which means they're being sexually solicited online one in four is a victim of sextortion which means they're being uh, blackmailed one in four is under the age of 12 severe live streaming of sexual abuses is increasingly targeting younger and younger children with the bulk of live streaming happening with children that are under the age of three which effectively are infants 95% of the raw CSAM is hosted on European and North American servers, right? So the wow. problem is being created in the West and is being consumed in, in the global South. That's kind of what we're, we've been seeing in terms of trend. So we, we mapped out this, you know, the problem and kind of reverse engineered Bracket Foundation as a result with the mission to leverage technologies to come, with the mission to leverage new technologies for social Detroit, goods. Yeah. At the UN General Assembly, we ended up organizing a roundtable where we invited activists, you know, former heads of states, but most importantly, uh, big tech companies, right? Because they needed to be part of the conversation. And one of the biggest challenges that existed was around data, mm -hmm. right? That you can't really build the solutions. You can't build the new tools required to combat these, these crimes if you don't have the data. And because of different data regulations, you know, around GDPR and et cetera, it's difficult to have data sharing amongst yeah. different uh, solution providers. So that's where the idea of the UN acting as an umbrella mm -hmm. came about. So we partnered with the United Nations Interregional Center for Crime and Justice, UNICRI, to create what now became um, a platform called AI for Safer Children that allows law enforcement agencies worldwide uh, to be empowered with tools to better protect, detect, and prosecute these crimes being committed against children. Yeah. And that was our first uh, project, e effectively. 
And as a result, there's been some progress that's been That is a beautiful achievement. I want to try to break down a little bit. You've shared a lot of very interesting and alarming (laughs) information. And I just want to try to understand a few things to get us to where these crimes are happening, which is on the metaverse. But before that, so people know a lot about gaming. Mm-hmm. Right? Gaming is, is a massive industry. And, and within gaming, there's what we call the concept of the metaverse. But I still believe many people do not understand what's the metaverse. I mean, yeah. we, we could know the, the kind of the <laughs> definition, but so wh- wh- what's the metaverse? I have my, my niece and nephews who spend yeah. hours and hours on, what's the platform name? Uh, some, it's Roblox. a metaverse. Roblox. It's a metaverse, right? Yeah, it's so, a metaverse. So tell us what's the metaverse here. And yeah, let, let's just talk about the metaverse. I'll give you just the simplest answer of what the metaverse is. So the metaverse is a virtual world where you're in- interacting an avatar form of yourself, most often, you know, wearing virtual reality headsets and doing much of the things you would do in the real world, but in the virtual world. So you're building relationships you're conducting business, you're purchasing real estate, you're just hanging out, and this is happening in a virtual world. They spend lots of hours on this virtual world. Do, we have, do they have parallel life? Can we say that they have like a, a, a yeah, normal life a, with you and, and, and your husband, and the, then they go and create yeah, their own avatar, they, and, they, and they, they have friends, God knows where they are coming from, absolutely. and they're between what, three and six, and seven years eight, old now? Well, kids between three and 18. Yeah, yeah my kids, yeah. they're smaller, yes. And, and they're gonna grow with this. They're so, gonna grow with this, yeah. So the version- Life will become fluid, right? Like there is gonna be a, a lot of back and forth between your virtual life and your, and in the real wor- world life. On your personal experience, what are some of the experiences they go through and how do you create that sense of how you sleep at night and say, okay, I think they're safe by using the devices today? I don't. You don't. And they're not safe. <clears throat> they're not safe, regardless no. of yeah, no, they're, whatever they're tool you put, whatever, yeah, whatever protection, whatever. These, these platforms are very poorly designed. All right, so can, th- yeah. can you elaborate then on the specific re, uh, repercussions re, uh, of these uh, platforms? I can walk you through our research and yeah. what we've yeah. done, right? So we published Bracket Foundation's first white paper, which was uh, how to leverage artificial intelligence to combat online child sexual exploitation and abuse. And then we followed with a sequel which looks at the nascent threats that exist, especially in relation to online child sexual exploitation and abuse on the metaverse and online social gaming platforms. So we hired a team of consultants and we went underground. Effectively, that's what we did. We went on these platforms. A user. As a user, exactly. We created a profile as a 10-year-old child and went on on, on these platforms. On the gaming platform, there's literally zero barriers to entries. But effectively, the way that these games are designed is that anyone can create an account. Uh, whether you're uh, 10 or you're 40, you're having access to the same children game, right? There is no barriers to entry whatsoever. There's no email verification. There's no identity verification. Uh, all parental controls by default on these platforms are turned off. 
And to turn them on, you need to navigate, you know, 10 menus with 13 categories and 40 subcategories. Yeah, it's, and it's, trust so it's me, probably it's, designed it's to make designed it to make you fail. Yeah. It's designed to make you incredibly frustrated as a parent, make you feel super inadequate when it comes to protecting your children. That's how they're designed. So these big tech companies are putting the onus on you as a parent to make your mm. children safe. They're designing the same platform for adults, for children, and again, very, very dangerous by design. So that if, that's effectively what there, there is. Then fast forward to the VR platform. That was an even worse experience. So the moment you enter this VR me metaverse and you have your headsets on, within minutes, you're abused as a child, right? And obviously, there's a wide spectrum of abuse, but, you know, someone coming up and pulling up the middle finger at you, right? Yeah. That's an abuse, yeah. or shouting profanities. And let's not underestimate one thing. If trauma is happening in the virtual world, it's not less severe it's, than it's, trauma it's, happening it's much in the real world. More, it's yeah. the same trauma yeah. that's for kids, right? Yeah. And that's what you're exposing them to. So then we interviewed a journalist, and she had gone undercover as a 12-year-old child on one of these you know, chil children metaverse companies. Mm. And she went undercover as a 12-year-old girl. And within minutes of entering the, the platform, she's being groped, right? There are other avatars because there's no respect of your personal space in the metaverse, right? There's avatars coming at her and being like, oh, 12-year-old girls, that's just my thing, oh my right? God. This is happening, you know, and uh, these are like these new forms of abuses, right? So grooming and sextortion and these things are happening wow. on these platforms that, that are not safe at all. And the metaverse and online social gaming platforms are uh, the fastest growing industries of our generation. Mm. There's 3.2 billion gamers out there. 50% are under the age of 18. And gaming nowadays is very, very different to gaming when we were kids. So we're the Nintendo, we Super yeah. Mario, at most Xbox. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was even a Tetris <laughs> generation. But when we would play games, you know, a game had a beginning, it had an end. Yeah, but it was very. You go through a journey of, yeah, of competing and, and winning stages. There you go. And, yeah. It's it's beginning and you start yeah. the game, you end the game. You're playing with your sister, your brother, your friends in the same room. Nowadays, games are social networks. Mm. So kids log in to the game to hang out. There's no beginning. There's no end. You're just hanging out and cons consuming as you go. You know, you log on, you interact with your friends, you create content, you watch a Travis Scott concert. All this is happening in the metaverse on these online social gaming platforms. And you do so expecting to be safe, but you're not. Because effectively, these platforms have become hunting ground for predators. Wow. Hunt, are, they're designed to be hunting ground for, you know, pedophiles at the end of the day. Mm. And these are some of the best funded, most funded That's well. That's crazy. Uh, platforms in the world. Online gaming, online social gaming platform generated over $180 billion in revenues last wow. year. The metaverse so is So we don't care basically about the impact and the effect since it has a, a very solid return on investment. The investors Clearly, don't even check the ethical, the value behind many it. Many are, well now more so because yeah. there's more awareness. But in the way it was designed up till now, very little. You know, the metaverse is expected to generate over $600 billion in revenues mm. in the next few years. Mm. That's more than the GDP of a country, right? But obviously, 
it's as you said returns growth like, so we consider uh, un- these big tech companies absolutely yeah yeah it's the big tech companies yeah. this is happening at the level of the biggest most well funded companies in the world that allocate their resources for growth unhindered growth as opposed to allocating resources to safety because effectively there's no repercussions to them having these dangerous platforms they're All not right. being held accountable and they're not being penalized and they're just being incentivized to continue are growing in this fashion that is detrimental effectively to our kids. All right, so you're mentioning basically that the rise of big tech is an important contributor to this crisis. Yeah. Do you see these companies addressing the issues and the problems well and and maybe how much you're trying to contribute to make sure that these companies address the problems and and don't ignore these things? Yeah, big tech is definitely one of the biggest contributors of these crimes that and is happening. And when we say big tech here, are we talking always about those big names or 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 yeah, we, you referring no, let's, to anyone who get to let's, a, a let's, level of we, unicorn? We can we can do a big you know, a quick scan, right? So Microsoft and Google hmm. have given you low low cost peer-to-peer platforms hmm. where Predators can, you know, in in a second share child sexual abuse material. Mm. Apple, you know, Apple have given us broadcasting studios, you know, that you hold in your in the pocket of your jacket, where you can live stream uh, crimes, uh, uh, child abuse crimes being committed um, against against wow. children. Uh, Snapchat, YouTube created allow predators to create these communities. and go undetected where they can share you know best practices on how to sustain their crimes and the list goes on like wow. this is happening and at the level it's super hard to just of, detect them so this is what's interesting mm. this is what's interesting the legislation that uh, continues to regulate the internet is legislation that dates back to the 90s right when yeah. the internet first came about there's one particular law that in our world comes comes about quite often called section 230 of the communication and decency act that effectively says that big tech platforms technology platforms generally are not responsible for third party content that exists mm. on their platforms so this leads uh, companies to not want the liability that comes with addressing this problem so what does facebook messenger do obviously there's loads of now they're collaborating and actually facebook messenger is one of uh, the biggest uh, ally of the law enforcement agency at this stage but effectively not their only response, as a lobbying exercise it, they're genuinely they're gen- right. I, i think they're genuine but effectively what happened is they encrypt messenger further mm. right but by encrypting messenger further you're making the job of law enforcement agencies effectively impossible effectively impossible to do so yeah there has been progress how do they do this can can you get us a little bit do, do they use ai and and like if you're fully encrypted it's very difficult yeah. to find the data yeah. the data is yeah. effectively lost right but now they're less they're, they're mm. segregating child abuse material and other areas but where they encrypt but but to your point yes there has been progress and artificial intelligence which is also a source of the problem but definitely needs to be part of the solution is one of the only way forward in terms of how you address these crimes and we've seen you know instances where so t- t- to the collaboration that we have with the United Nations Interregional Center for Crime and Justice so we've paired tool providers with law enforcement agents 
to address specific crimes, right? And we've seen, for example, with the image recognition software that we've provided, that uh, your time to detect uh, and find victims has been reduced by, let's say, 50%. There are now tools that you can use on platforms that are natural language processing system that can indicate to you if a child is texting with a stranger and they're in distress. Yes, so there's like progress being made on that front. Uh, But the most important, you know, there cannot be a solution unless the big tech companies that effectively have the budget. It's not a startup that's going to solve the issue. These big tech companies that have the budget need to allocate resources to make sure that their platforms are designed in a way that's safe. Yeah. I I want to I want to deep dive a little bit more on on AI because it's a, it's it's an important topic and I just want to under we want to understand a little bit more using this tool how is it used to mitigate the problem if if you have a little bit more details on how do you implement this in 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 these platforms to just you know, solve some of these issues. What yeah, would be so your- I guess, you know, AI, you have artificial intelligence, you have machine learning, you have natural language yeah. processing. These are kind of the main areas of, of AI. So for image recognition, let's yeah. say. Well, that's one so, of the examples. Yeah, you, that's yeah. one of the examples. So image recognition, if you're... To create a, a profile, a metaverse, you want to make sure... Exactly, yeah. just scan for the... Make sure that it's a child logging in, not mm. a 40-year-old man yeah. uh, that's pretending to be a child, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's logging into these platforms. You can use voice recognition. Make sure that this is the voice of a child and not the voice of... You know, machine learning, they become mm. smarter as you give them more data. So obviously, you're going to have issues... Initially, when you roll these out, mm. but then as you progress, it'll become m- more proficient. Are we seeing the, the, the development of this problem as part and in parallel to the development of technology? Everything is new for everyone. So, you know, things are just fast. I'm asking this because I want to understand the policymakers you work with. And uh, you, you mentioned the agent, uh, the, the law enforcement agent. How much they're up to date with the technology because we're empowering them to fix a problem but h- how much they're they so are, far be- they're so far behind they're, they're so far behind so technology has allowed predators and children mm. to become more technologically savvy and sadly law enforcement agencies but also parents and caregivers yeah. are are not able to keep up right so now this goes know, beyond public policy and policing beyond, this is yeah. this is a collective effort. Yeah, it's this also like private sector versus public sector, yeah. if you think about it, yeah. right? Like they, they just don't have the tools, they don't have the investments on, yeah. the, on the public sector. That's why, at, you know, at the foundation level, we have three verticals. The first vertical is empowering law enforcement agencies with the right tools to better detect, <coughs> prevent, and prosecute these crimes that are being against children. The second vertical is advocating within big tech for them to make their platforms safer by design. Because again, the onus should not be on the user, should not be on the law enforcement agent. It Mm -hmm. should really start with the product that you're putting out to a user, right? If you're in the media business and you're broadcasting content that is that is harmful or there there are very clear legal and financial ramifications to the output that is that is your responsibility effectively but if you're big tech there's zero liability there's no accountability you're not penalized Mm. legally you're not penalized financially so far right you're protected by outdated laws that say that 
you don't have the yeah. liability because you're not the one putting that content, but you're de- you're developing the house and letting you know bad actors enter your house. Mm. So you do have that. So then, then uh, from your perspective, how society should react to this? I mean, we know we we, sp- we spoke a little bit about the private, the public, the government. How, generally speaking, now that these things are are really harmful and and they are growing in terms of you know influence and impact on on the society, how the society should react to ensure that you know our children are you know a bit more protected online since their life is going to be online. No, absolutely. Well, first of all, as a parent, if something if you're not pleased with something, and go to Twitter, right? Go to Twitter to X. <laughs> it's now called X. And hold your big tech providers accountable. So my kids are still small, right? So they're under the age of six. And we have a no tablet policy that we try to implement to the best of our capability, Mm. right? But at some point, my child is going to need a phone, right? Because I'm going to need to communicate with them. And I'm going to have, you know, just this is where we are. And I want to be able to walk in to a service provider and be sold a phone that has all the parental controls turned on by by default, default, as opposed to me having to figure it out and having something that is safe that I feel, you know, makes my life easier and gives gives my mind at peace when I'm... uh, But they're not going to make money this way. Well, that's where the pressure needs to go. Mm. As a society, I think, you know, we need to do different things. You need to lobby for safer products. Uh, You need to uh, lobby your your governments to provide the resources needed to educate you on, you know, the monstrosities that exist out there and how unsafe these products yeah. are and this huge world of online child sexual abuse, especially in our region. You know, you say you say online child sexual abuse. And yeah, it's a taboo. Yeah. It's like you don't, you don't super touch taboo. Yeah. You don't want to hear about yeah. it. So we don't know you the don't, impact you, of this in 10, 20 years. It's going to change potentially the society, how they grow. and, and I think it's important to stop de- living in denial. So yeah. children yeah. are getting abused. Uh, children are getting groomed. Yeah. And children are falling victim to new types of abuses like sextortion, where effectively they're being blackmailed to share pictures of themselves that are very often self-generated with strangers, and that gets them into a loop, yeah. right? So as a society, you need to start with that. And you need to understand that if it's trauma that's happening in the online world, it's no less severe than trauma that's happening in, in your the real, real world. world. Yeah. And you need to start having conversations with your children about these environments, mm. right? When we were growing up, do you remember the first two rules that your parents used to tell you? Many rules. As a child <laughs> in Montreal. One, you don't speak to ch- strangers. Yeah. And two, you never accept candy from yeah. strangers. Yeah, yeah, right? That's yeah, what yeah, our yes, parents yes, used to yes. say. That's how we grew up. Yeah. Rule number one, rule number two. <laughs> like you're walking to school, you do complete. not talk to strangers, yeah. you do not take candy yeah. from strangers. Nowadays, yeah. kids are on these online yeah. platforms. I love Constantly this. Yeah. exposed and talking with strangers. You have no clue. You have no clue who your child is speaking to online. And two, accepting candy from them because in the form of, you know, Robux, yeah, which the, is the, the currency litter, the litter, for, yeah. and prizes and awards and yeah. unlocking this. It has the same ponytail effect like candy Absolutely. or, or, or little and star. And it creates, yeah. you know, unhealthy dependency, codependency. Mm to strangers effectively on these platforms. I, I see your beautiful passion about this. So what, what's what's coming next for, for Bracket? For the Bracket you, Foundation? Well, we're yeah. still doing more of the same with advocacy, empowering law enforcement agencies, and also uh, working a lot on the legislative front to make sure that legislation is being put out that 
prioritizes safety mm. when it comes to products that are being sold and advertised to our children. And we're working on a user manual, this time targeted at parents and caregivers mm-hmm. to empower them with the, with the knowledge Bravo. to take this yeah. on. So Bravo. that's at the foundation level. And two bonus questions. Yes, the, I love bonus the, questions. To the, to the, thanks to our producer. He said, oh, I want, oh, okay, we, cool. we need those bonus questions. <laughs> Considering your involvement in technology, are there any apps or digital tools you can't live without today? And I know where you're going. <laughs> Can I have a guess? <laughs> I don't think you'll have the guess. <laughs> All right, so tell so, you. Okay, so I guess one tool that I really can't live without is my step tracker. Yes. Oh, wow. To make sure that I get my 10,000 steps nice. uh, a day in the real world. But that, that's not when you online. live in Qatar, because in London you do, you do them without even counting, right? <laughs> well, you need to make sure that you're, you know, you're you need it, a very yeah. sedentary lifestyle. 10,000 a day. Um, yes. Yeah, so so I would say the only real one that I can't live without mm-hmm. is my step tracker. Yeah. So making sure that I get my 10,000 steps a day in the real world. Yeah, so yeah. So not online. You know, that's where I'm disconnected from social media, disconnected yeah. from my emails. Yeah. I'm in nature. I'm getting my steps Do you done. listen to music or podcasts when you do this? Yeah, I listen yeah. to music. Or actually, I use that time to go for walks with, uh, with, the kid, with, with, with people I'm having meetings with. Oh, you know, amazing. I, I'm a huge <laughs> that's fan That's a good of creative way, meeting. actually. Huge, yeah. yeah, I'm a huge yeah. fan of walking mm. meetings, active meetings. Mm. Or, you know, with a loved one, right? Yeah. Catching up with a friend or with yeah. a partner. and uh, yeah. yeah, in our busy ti- lifestyle, yeah, I think it's so cool to do this. Uh, yeah. and, and one last question. If you uh, pick any technological advancement, uh, fictional or not, to be a reality within your lifetime, what would it be? Okay, well, it's no secret that I'm a big Elon Musk fan. Okay. Right? And he's, he's developing, well, he's launched this company called Neuralink where it will enable humans to upload and download their memories. And it's actually one of the best use cases for it is Alzheimer, which is one health issue that he's hoping to solve. But it's still quite early in the you know, technological mm-hmm. journey of that, of that invention. So I'm hoping as someone who's very, very forgetful that it will be made real uh, in my lifetime so I can upload and download my memory and never have to forget anything. I almost feel we're not far away from that. Yeah. I, I truly believe and we can get there in maybe 10 years easily. Yeah. I just hope that we can use these tools yeah, for good, positively to, and not, uh, you know, it, it, this is not of the machine. A, a chapter of Black <laughs> Mirror. <laughs> thank you true. so much, Yalda. No, this was this a was profoundly fun. beautiful conversation. And I think we have room to part one and uh, part, part two and three uh, next time with, with other topics. And I do want to wish you uh, beautiful, beautiful success in, in what you're doing with uh, Bracket Foundation. I think you're doing work that is not only needed, but it's very important to raise awareness about this because in this very fast life we have and we're not paying attention to the effect and impact uh, online is going to have on the next generation and i just hope that we can mitigate and find solution as much as possible just to have a sane society Mm -hmm. and make sure that also we don't create a bigger gap between the developed and the developing nations so thank you for the, thank for the you. work you're doing and, and all the best with all the amazing also investment you're doing. Thank you thank so you. much. And all the best with, with Wise On Air and uh, hats off to your production team. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. High thank five. You. <laughs> <laughs>